Hello, and welcome to Punching Out. Every week, we're here on Wayo Radio talking about the problems people have with their work, whether it's incompetent bosses or unfair policies, hostile workplaces or dismal paychecks, or anything in between. We want to hear from you. If you'd like to share your work problems with us, email us at punchingoutwayo at gmail.com and let us talk about them. Tune in and punch out. Your boss isn't listening, but we are. Welcome to Punching Out. I'm Noah. I'm joined this week by Lou. Hey, guys. And Anita. Hi. And we're going to talk to you over the next hour about some various concepts that have to do with kind of resilience and sort of myths uh, that are beamed at working people in this country. But before we do that, some of you may have listened to a previous episode we did called The Case Against Meritocracy. But in case you're not one of those, especially in case if maybe you're a first-time listener, in which case, welcome and strap in. Hmm. We'd like to just very, very briefly go over what this definition of meritocracy is. Would either like would either of you like to take that one? Uh, basically, meritocracy <laughs> is the idea that people earn their place. They earn their place in life. So, if you work hard and follow the rules and and perform well, then you'll be rewarded. Um, in the form of money or power or notoriety, whatever. For a variety of reasons, this probably isn't true, uh, which we'll talk about. But that's basically it. It's the idea that, you know, your the amount of work you're put in is directly proportional to the amount of reward that you get in the end. So this concept is um, technically an enlightenment concept because before that, um, in feudalism, you could never work your way out of being a serf. You would just be a serf or you were a lord and you were always a lord. And to change status would be seen as against the will of, you know, your various deities. And um, so in the after the Enlightenment, the concept from liberals was a man or, or a woman should be able to work their way out of their poverty or work their way up some sort of ladder. Um it's it's something deeply ingrained in American society, um, somewhat in European society as well, and it's um, largely just a smokescreen. And so you heard it right there. The official <laughs> position of punching out is that there is no such thing as meritocracy, and uh, that's also the correct position as well. <laughs> but I think one one of the impetus says behind this episode. Empatai? Empatai. Uh, behind this episode, <laughs> it's fourth declension, it's impetus. Uh, is that. That's way better. Like yeah, this. <laughs> is that we're basically sold this idea of inherent merit and meritocracy in many, many different ways throughout the years. So, you know, in the 1800s, it, uh, late 1800s anyway, it was Horatio Alger. In the early 1900s, um, there was this idea, uh, you had the factory schools in places like Gary, Indiana, and so on, that were supposed to be teaching the the children of the working class their place in society, which was, you know, to to toil away for the benefit of the rich and also society, which is always identified with the rich. And now, because we've realized that you can't be that openly classist, now you have some new concepts that have emerged as a way to convince everybody to be okay with this. Uh, so, for example, Lou, this is where I might ask you, mm-hmm. how would you like your grit? Resilient, creamy, or al dente? <laughs> uh, regular, I guess. What, what exactly is – what is this idea of grit? Because, see, to <clears throat> me, grit is like a baseball player sliding hard into second, and that's Hopefully exciting. Hopefully into somebody's butt at the same time. That's fair. But this is – that. that's exciting. So that's, that makes here. good baseball. Right. But I don't think that's what we're talking about here. Yeah. Uh, I'd say in general terms that we use grit now to describe a uh, characteristic of a person in a profession usually or some kind of task um, that is related to the amount of effort that they're putting through. In the work, so in sports terms, there it may not reflect their actual stats, whether they're good or, or whatever, um, but it refers to some kind of alleged inherent quality to their person that causes them to put for 
put forth more effort, more um, try, if I can make a mm-hmm. verb into a noun, um, into that. And then in terms of like workers, that's their ability to just forge ahead and keep working um, despite circumstances or uh you know, roadblocks roadblocks or relative wealth compared to others. Funnily enough, grit usually (laughs) is a characteristic of people who don't have those circumstances or or, or circumstances that would otherwise be advantageous to them. Yeah, there's a certain stickiness that the working poor and workers in general are expected to have that, you know, sense of willpower or extra, you know, drive mm-hmm. that they're all expected to exude. But the problem is, is that and that never seems to be part of the elite classes uh, lot in life. Right. And this isn't just some wild um, overarching conspiracy for no good reason. There is a good reason why this propaganda is um, permeating through all of our society. It's because if the top 1% were to admit that they had just been the um, lucky birth club, then um, they wouldn't have any they wouldn't even in themselves be able to have any right to look down on their fellow, you know, people like that. So that would be shattering to them. Um, there might they might catch some feelings from that. Um, <laughs> Rich people have feelings. Yeah, no. yeah. Well, you know, that's fake. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so it would basically destroy the system that they had set up, and they would not be able to easily steal our labor like that. Right. Yeah, I'd say like the best you know, tangible evidence or example of grit is that infamous Fiverr ad. Uh, the the one we have now talked about 12 times on this show. <laughs> yes. Uh, the <laughs> it, It's it's infamous. Um, you know, your you, coffee is your meal, whatever. I don't uh, know. You, you get five, you get 3.5 hours of sleep a night. Exactly. That seems like sickness to me. Yeah. yeah. Like, but it's grit though. It's so good. And so such a wonderful thing to brag about and have time is that you are literally working yourself into the ground, apparently. And that's a good thing. Yeah. A, a kind of yeah, weird, um, a kind of weird thing that occurred to me while uh, y'all were talking about it too is that to go back to the sports examples for a little bit when when I started paying attention. This to isn't sports, a striking out episode. No, it's, first of all, it's strike zone. Whatever. Second of all, wow. Uh, but <laughs> the more important thing is that the term grit also had a racial characteristic to it. Mm -hmm. Uh, As sports writers, especially the older and whiter and more male sports writers, tended to... Oh, yeah, those guys don't exist anymore. Yeah. They (laughs) tended to associate that quality of grit almost always with players who had another kind of inherent characteristic, uh, namely their light skin color. Right. Tended to be... The reason they were gritty as opposed to, you know, all the new flashy hip hop style players <laughs> that didn't have grit and just relied on athleticism right. and uh, also known as skill in playing the game. I know. That's that's crazy. But it the was, white guys, they had grit. Yeah. Which is and, why you need to pay well, them more because they're putting in more effort. Exactly. And the thing I think that sort of gets at all of those things is this idea that ultimately – Because you're supposed to be able to work your way out of poverty, because you're supposed to show the elite how hard you're willing to work in order to uh, (laughs) better your station, you – there's all of these ways to sort of do that. Now, I come at this from the educational side of things. So for us, what we call grit or resilience or whatever other funny name you want to put to it really comes out of one person and – I swear this is not a bit, but it is a quote-unquote Stanford uh, (laughs) psychologist who came up with this idea of a growth mindset. Now, I've spent the last few years getting growth mindset beamed at me from various administrators and parents and even some students and some friends uh, who think that this is automatically going to make me a better teacher because I should – be very clear. I haven't been taught how to implement a growth mindset. I haven't been taught how to have a growth mindset. I've just been told that it's a thing and what, that my students should mindset. Yes, and that my students should have it. That's it. That's as far as it's gone. It, it's here's this thing. It's good. You should cultivate it. You raise your hand and go, "Okay, how should I cultivate it?" Oh, that part you're on your own. 
that, yeah. that that's yeah, on why you. Don't, why don't you have some grit and figure <laughs> yeah, out what it is? Yeah, seriously. Be resilient. Yeah. Get more of a growth mindset so, about it. What I've seen from, you know, the articles we've been reading amongst ourselves, grit is something that can only be determined that you have it after you have shown that you have it. And so therefore, whatever this, you know, whatever this, yeah, exactly. That's some like galaxy brain stuff. So, (laughs) so look at this kid. He has grit. He, you know, he had a single parent and he grew up poor and he had to dodge the gangs to get to school Mm -hmm. and all this other stuff. There's, 30, 40, 50 other people in his class that just didn't make it. And it wasn't because they didn't have grit. It's right. maybe they just didn't get beat up every day. Maybe right. they, you know, maybe he was lucky enough that he got a ride to school on Friday. Whatever. So whatever this grit is, it's it's luck in another name. Right. It yeah. really is just a nonsense. Um, it's a way that they can, it's a way that they can kind of clear the field mm-hmm. and say, we'll allow that one indigent child or that one poor kid to succeed and he must be the hallmark of what you need to be in order to do x y and z you know neil degrasse tyson (laughs) essentially yeah so a guy famously not problematic at all uh (laughs) he's got (laughs) yeah so so you call it hindsight bias that's exactly what it is In, in real terms it's making the exception to what goes on the rule Mm-hmm. Um, and saying like this, this one time this worked, therefore it must be able to work in all circumstances. Yeah, that's and it, goal. and it, and they deliberately do that to remove that element of luck and fortune and, and other circumstances that are going on. Um, you know, you look at the statistics of if you grow up like that, like that kid in your example, like what are the actual real life chances of you becoming a billionaire? Yeah, like, like Bill Cosby is the grit guy, right? He's a pull up your mm-hmm. pants guy. Not a good dude. <laughs> all right, not a good. Not one. at all. Um, so <laughs> very bad person. He spent like, arguably he needed to spend more time pulling up his pants yes, and just keeping did. them on. So he spent years and years and years deriding the black community for mm-hmm. not being exceptional like him and making it like him, quote unquote, um, and essentially just causing his luck to be the downfall of every other person who he was using that as an example mm-hmm. for. So that's the kind of thing. And, you know, I, I know that he's like a, he's a bad dude and I hate even bringing the guy up, but he's a perfect example yeah. of mm-hmm. how that is not actually really possible. Right. Well, and that, and that he's a traitor. Yeah. Well, this is this sort of, uh, this is winging it here, but this brings up another kind of theme that goes within that, which is that, you know, we have an elite class that is overwhelmingly the same people. It's overwhelmingly mm-hmm. white men mm-hmm. from the same families that have always controlled money in America. It's very rare to have anybody sort of break into that. Right. And so for communities like for communities like black people, like Hispanics, like Asians, there's always an attempt to push someone forward on the basis of that grit and resilience. Mm-hmm. For us Puerto Ricans, we've got Limonol Miranda. Who, Get in the trash can. Who is supposed to be this amazing hero of Broadway and so on. And the thing that they never mention is that his dad is a rich political advisor to Democratic politicians in New York City who got where he is because of a government scholarship to attend them YU. Without which he would have never had the opportunities that he got. Right. But we're not supposed to mention that in his son's biography because that that might make him feel a little bit worse about, you know – <clears throat> appropriating the culture of the streets. Uh, yeah. So, yeah. and pretending to be an immigrant. But anyway. <laughs> oh my God. I'm not, I, that's it. I'm not going to get into it anymore. But it's, it's this need. <laughs> that was all of it. <laughs> pretty much. <laughs> succinct. Yeah. But it, it's this idea again, this growth mindset stuff. So it has been beamed at me. It has been asked of us that we develop it. But the thing is, There's a reason that they have suggested it to teachers specifically that Mm -hmm. we should have it so that our kids will have it. And I know deep down that the reason behind that is that I teach kids who come from the upper middle class and the upper class for the most part. That is decreasingly the case because, well, decreasingly we don't have an upper middle class. We just have an upper class and everyone else. And, you know, my kids are going to reflect that demographic shift. 
But the ultimate reason that they're not doing that is that we immunize the children of the rich from having to grow. Yeah. For centuries. And this hasn't really changed. I mean, you look at any country that is under a capitalist system and some that pretend to not be. You look at any any private educational establishment that is specifically about taking the children of the upper class out of circulation with the children of everyone else. And what you immediately find is that teachers and administrators and parents and everyone else in those schools is doing their utmost to bend over backwards to ensure that those children never face any real adversity, that the worst problem they ever have is that they fail a class. And they can get that overturned just by talking to the right person too. So it's not like that is actually a roadblock or an obstacle. That the worst thing is they don't get into their first choice college. That the worst thing is they don't make varsity sport by the end of their high school career. And then they carry that forward into the rest of their lives. They carry forward never being told no. It's entitlement. And it's it's really just a disease of the fail sons of the rich, and <laughs> like it, it, it's it's affluenza. It's fail sons it, disease. Yeah, <laughs> fail sons disease. disease. It, it makes you <laughs> I like that. impervious to other people's pain. It makes yeah. you unable to empathize with your fellow human beings, and it makes you produce uh, absolutely nothing with the wealth that right. you are, you know, undeservedly given. So you know you land butt backwards into a pile of cash just because you're born and nobody ever tells you no so if you're like one of the Koch brothers sons you go and make fancy shirts, shirts. Or, yeah, yes or some lame thing like that you know which <laughs> makes me laugh oh, really too hard oh my god he's <laughs> hilarious right so, but he's or, also the worst or you like I went to a university where there were a, a lot of very very rich kids in the program sort of next to my program what were they doing? They're making pottery because who the, crap, who the heck cares? Uh, you don't have to be here. You went to RIT and you're in the pottery program. <laughs> what, what kind of crazy fun money are you talking about right now? You know what I mean? Like yeah. your parents paid for you to go make some clay pots. I'm sorry, but I, I can't even. And, right. And, also, and I'm not trying to say. Hold up. You know. And also you're a rich kid and you ended up at RIT in the pottery program. Your parents didn't bribe the right people. Right. Come on, guys. No, I mean, that's some starry-eyed BS. Like, I'm going to be some sort of poet, pottery, slash, you Mm -hmm. know, mixed-media artist in open galleries somewhere and never make a dime in my life, but who cares? Like, what was the, the you know, joke that our parents liked to tell us when we were growing up is, oh, yeah, you're going to go to college and make uh, take classes in underwater basket weaving Mm -hmm. as something useless. Useless and so so for people in in our generation and our class basically mm-hmm. um, that was not something we had the option to do you know you had to go to school and do something useful and right. if you were dumb and did something like an English degree or something then you had you didn't matter how much grit you yeah. had either you mm-hmm. know you could be ridiculed for all time we, so the, we, sorry the choices that you're making as a regular person versus a one percenter um, are radically different. Absolutely. And then the problem is that we gave control of all of the institutions that determine the choices for everyone else to the one percenters. Mm -hmm. So then you've also got the problem where it's the dreams of the one percenters that control the cultural myths, that control educational access, that control everything else for the rest of us. So if you're the one trying to pick a major in college or whatever, you're hearing, oh, yes, absolutely, there's jobs in that. And right. then all of the examples you're given are people whose parents were able to find them a job right. doing something that's completely outside of their field. And you're supposed to think that it was their great humanities writing skills that got them there. Right. Yeah. So here's another example of how this kind of permeates our culture and, and is a <clears throat> feedback loop. If all of the sons and daughters of the rich end up going into only the arts because they don't have to make money, the arts will then only reflect the outlook of people who are already rich. And therefore, you'll have stuff like, you know, Baroque artwork back then where it was only made by people who were very, very wealthy and painted or, uh, you know, sculptures, the pastoral images of of, of the poor enjoying their life and their lot in life, uh, the, the poor farmer just lazing about in the field right. and having a nice time. This is all the mindset of the aristocracy, and that's because that's the only people that could afford to goof off with their degree. Mm-hmm. 
Absolutely, 100% agree with that. I, <laughs> I have said that before, not on the show, but 100% said that before. So other things that uh, off of what Noah was saying, um, different from what Anita was saying, is that the people who t take these things and do fine art de arts degrees and everything like that, they are people who are the same people who take unpaid internships. So going back to an episode that we did a little while ago, um, what is the grit factor of somebody who can afford to take an unpaid internship? It, it's telling then, and it, and it reveals the hypocrisy of the whole system. If we're saying that grit is something that's primarily for the working classes, middle classes to rise above, in in the fields that Anita was talking about, those those fine arts fields, journalism, graphic design, um, publishing, anything like that, those are are founded on unpaid internships. Like that's the basis of the industry, and that's all about grit and your willingness to put your head down and just keep working despite not getting any compensation or a guaranteed position out of it at all. And we, as we said on that previous episode, that is something that is only available to the upper class, to, to middle and upper class people, people who can afford to not get any kind of income and just work. So even within that whole system of grit, they are lying. And, and it's that intersection that really reveals that. It's, it's this idea that there is equality of opportunity, but not equality of outcome. And what that has always failed to take into account is that opportunity is itself stratified and that That's if right. you can't if you can't afford essentially to work for starvation wages, if you can't afford to have no money, if you can't afford to uh, you know not be able to essentially not be able to make rent or buy food with what you're being paid to do, then, Sucks to be you, basically. Yeah, yeah. There's, uh, I guess you have to find the more uh, well-paying career path, which shunts the working classes into out of things like fine arts, out of academia, out of other things where, ironically, the views and perspectives of working class people would make a huge difference mm -hmm. in what those professions do. So uh, this brings up a strange topic, but an offshoot. It's the same sort of thing when it comes to government and volunteer mm -hmm. work because when I was uh, working as a city, city councilwoman um, I noticed and we all noticed that the reason why uh, it was hard for people to get to meetings was because it was on a Tuesday night right and people need childcare. so who is able to come on a Tuesday night at a, as just as work is letting out like around you know 430 or something like that um, people with People with a steady nine to fiver who don't have to worry about childcare. So you're going to have less young women, less, uh, middle income people who are able to make that sacrifice or mm -hmm. even to go there. So, I mean, we, we played around with the idea of making it mandatory that these meetings be at a time when people could actually uh, participate in government because some people just wouldn't be able to run up, run for office. Because they just would have a Walmart job or a, or a job that keeps moving around. And it wasn't paid well. It isn't like, you know, for the $4,000 a year that you made that you could even make that sacrifice worth it. And it doesn't even pay for the childcare that you would need probably plus, you know, meals and all that. So this stratification happens not only within the job market and within government, but it's also happening just, I would say, an undercurrent on societal level. It's all running on rich white people time. And I'm sorry, mm. but that's a totally different time zone from a lot of working class people. That's absolutely the case. So over this segment, we've kind of laid out how the myth of, of grit and growth mindset uh, work in our culture and our society. When we come back, we're going to talk about actual growth and who gets to enjoy it. We'll be right back. You're listening to Punching Out on WAYOLP Rochester. If you'd like to continue slacking off, you can find all of our past episodes on iTunes and SoundCloud. Remember, your boss isn't listening, but we are. Welcome back to Punching Out. I'm Noah. I'm here with Anita. Hi. And Lou. Hey, guys. 
And in the last segment, we talked about these ideas of grit and growth mindset and how if you're a working person, if you're somebody who actually you know has to make an effort for a living, you are getting those ideas just absolutely beamed at you all the time and how, well, how they're lies. And one of the ways that we know that that is a lie is because when it comes to actual growth, not mindset growth, not educational or academic growth, but actual growth in the economy that we actually have, those assumptions don't really bear themselves out. Now, do they? Yeah. To be fair, I do think the whole economy is fake. Fair. <laughs> it's a, it's just a, a big Stanford old experiment. Yeah, it is a big old uh, deep state ploy. That's uh, all. Right. It's fake. Well, okay. But accepting, <laughs> accepting for the time being that the economy has some measure of reality. Sure. That's a big stretch, but okay. Fair. <laughs> How the game, the quote unquote, the 72 point air quotes gains that have been made in the economy over the past few decades, have those gone to the people that are supposed to be exerting growth mindset? Have those gone to the people who are supposed to be showing grit? No, Noah, they haven't. Oh, cool. I'm shocked. I'm shocked shocked to find that there's gambling in an establishment. Indeed. Um, (laughs) I I just, I I think that in a lot of ways, our belief that the market will take care of itself and that Mm -hmm. people need to pull themselves up by their bootstraps, these are all beamed into our brains um, over and over and over again. And it's becoming a mantra akin to some sort of religious sort of dogma where you're told you're supposed to work yourself to death and never, ever expect a penny more in your paycheck. Um, And it's just virtuous to just work too hard and make yourself sick. And The thing is, the the way they keep getting us to work that hard is they keep saying you will get a penny more in your paycheck. That might also be true. I, I, I think a lot of people... Um, wish that their boss would recognize them with um, a better paycheck rather than <laughs> stupid, you know, employee of the month stuff. Yeah, a sticker. Yeah. Gold stars, lunch with the boss. Ew. Oh boy. Yeah, <laughs> you. Uh, yeah, so, so the problem is the myth that they've set up with grit is that you have to keep working and keep growing and, and you know, always set your sights higher and, you know, don't, don't settle. Like all of those fun motivational posters and speakers and, and people literally make millions of dollars off selling you that horse crap. But ultimately, the growth that we've seen in the past 30, 40 years has all been in the 1%. Right, and so it's all going to the top. Yeah, overwhelmingly. And even among that, it comes down to the 0.1% that are making the most gains. And these are on capital gains and stark stock market crap, um, which is primarily why I think the economy is fake. Um, yeah, it's just a big old work. Yeah, it's just a big old gambling ring for rich people um, who then have convinced the rest of us poor schmoes that we have to give our money to it so that they can make more money and then maybe mm-hmm. we might get a few thousand dollars more. I mean, trickle-down economics has been failing since there Reagan. And it is it really is. It's dogmatic. People really do think they're waiting for that trickle. And, you know, we've we've been on the receiving end of practically nothing. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's been no growth. We were talking earlier about how if um, – if wages had kept up with inflation and and economic growth, we'd be making twenty four dollars an hour, something change minimum. Well, not just and not, not just keeping up with inflation. If it had kept up with productivity, productivity. Right. So, productivity. So, so so the amount of of uh, extra production that has gone into the economy since the sixties, we would we should be making uh, twenty four dollars an hour, and for a very long time. Minimum wage. At a minimum, to be clear. Right. Yeah, at a minimum. Uh, for a very long time, minimum wage was keeping up with productivity. As productivity increased, right. minimum wage increased. And then all of a sudden, in the 60s, when you get a lot of the beginnings of neoliberal economic policies, that's when the split between productivity and minimum wage happen. Because you have a whole bunch of people who say, well, no, actually, the fact that people are too happy is bad. We need to make sure that they they are just struggling a little bit enough so that they'll keep pushing themselves. This is a a whip-cracking sort of situation where it's all stick and no carrot. And Mm -hmm. people are just so desperate. It's almost like they're running out the clock on every single worker. Okay, how can we work them as much as possible until they basically die? And mm-hmm. they've they've taken away our uh, ability now to have a peaceful retirement with dignity. 
Um, I don't know anybody who's really officially retired who isn't still working. I see a lot of grit in our seniors when they make when they make burgers for people. Excuse me. I just find that very I feel that that's it's a dignified job because every right. job has dignity, but I don't want my grandmother to have to work. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. I just have an image now of gritty seniors. Yeah, like, they're gritty. Well, like, and, they, you know, they've and, got stick-to-itiveness, but you know what? We see that. But it's yeah. not a real factor when it comes to the market. Like, and, and let's remember there was a British minister, I forget his exact department, but he, I distinctly remember him saying that maybe the retired could work for their pensions, which is an interesting way to look at the concepts of being retired and the mm-hmm. concept of a pension. Yeah, that's well, pretty I'm novel. sure that's what they want to do. It's the same thing as the school lunch argument mm-hmm. where they want these poor kids to be, you know, tough and gritty because, look, they'll be the janitor for the school so that they can get their mm-hmm. lunch. That is it's it just de- deplorable is the word I'm thinking. The, I don't the know. thing the thing you have to keep in mind if you're somebody who's listening to this is uh, so you know the Thirteenth Amendment the one that says that unless you're a criminal which is super problematic um, <laughs> slavery is illegal right? right like the only circumstances under which you can do that is if the state decides that you have committed a wrong let's not talk about what that allows the state to do right <laughs> yeah <laughs> but that's another thing you have to remember that the elites in this country. It doesn't matter if they were in the North or in the South during the Civil War, are extremely angry that that is in the Constitution. They might not admit it. They don't think that they are. But ultimately, you talk to any of these people for long enough, and what you will very quickly find out is that the rich have always been angry that they have to pay their workers at all. What they have always wanted is to squeeze out all the value. Like you're making – like you're – squeezing a fruit and just leave behind a dry husk that they no longer have any responsibility for. We are all the juicero bags of humanity. <laughs> That's a throwback <laughs> reference. Oh. I was listening to a podcast. I can't believe I just it. got compared to a juicero bag on air. <laughs> well, it's it's equally pointless, right? Yeah. By Capri Sun. Yeah, and, and we are, in fact, often squeezed by machines that yeah, destroy true. us. So. Yeah. Metaphor uh, City. Just in the past week, there was an, an article that our producer, Ryan, shared with me about how automation, which we had talked about very recently, was further making workplaces hellish um, because basically you have a robot dictating how much work you're actually doing or or making a value judgment on how much work you're doing. And if it doesn't think you did enough, like, mouse clicks or keyboard strokes or had enough programs running, it would dock your pay. Like it, it, it took snapshots of your work day and if it, you didn't meet a certain threshold and how automation was basically putting out a schedule that was inhuman and, yeah. and was working people to death. And that's not surprising. We talked about automation already, but it's this, given the fact that we are in enforced grit mode at this point, mm. um, it's really concerning that we are understanding more and more a lot of us have always understood it um but it's becoming more public knowledge that the wealth that we have quote-unquote enjoyed as a nation has not been distributed and that the bottom 20 percent of the u.s has no wealth um there's more yeah Yeah. the entire bottom half of the united states has Zero so, to negative wealth. Yeah. Let me ask a question. There, there's more debt than wealth. Why is it that the um, sons and daughters of the well-to-do are expected not to have grit, but if you are you know, a working-class citizen, you are expected to have all this grit? which we've talked about as sort of a nebulous, uh, you know, hindsight sort of subject. But, I mean, nobody says, you know, um, I really admire the grit of, you know, the sons of Donald Trump. (laughs) They really, I like how they stick to it and they they don't give up and, you know, blah, blah, blah. Uh, But you hear the story over and over again about the poor uh, inner city child who, you know, worked two jobs and, you know, saved up all this money so that he could go to college by living in a car or whatever. Mm -hmm. These are stories that are lauded by the media. They are Mm -hmm. put up, they're work martyrs. They're put up to be our our, uh, shining star, what we're supposed to strive for. Um, This starved lifestyle where where there's no fun at all. 
you know, there's no family time, there's no uh, joy. And every moment of our day is sucked away by doing menial tasks. Mm -hmm. Instead of looking at a model like from Europe where they have like a 33-hour work week and they enjoy their time off and they are expected to enjoy their time off. And a lot of times it is forbidden basically to email on your off time because that would be a cultural moray you wouldn't want to break, you know? So like right now we need to be targeting toward that and away from the model where we're human, you know, machines, which I'd love to talk about how we did a massive amount of R&D on the slant for for Apple by everybody getting a smartwatch. And then it turns out a couple of years later, you know, while we were all having a good time tracking our our heartbeats or whatever, I didn't have one. (laughs) It turns out they used all that information to come out with wristbands that workers can wear so they can monitor how productive Mm -hmm. they are, like weird robot slaves. I mean, mm-hmm. we did all that R&D for free. Why? Because it was flashy. Yeah. You know? I think the reason that you see that kind of, they call it, you know, tragedy porn or work porn or whatever. The reason you see that lauded is because it is the necessary, like, side weight to the trickle-down myth. Right. Because you want people, you want, it, it's not good enough to push that idea that if you just give the rich more money, eventually some of it will come down to you. Because... Then over time, when those promises fail, you might have the populace grow the part of the brain that the Europeans already have, where they realize that the wealthy exist, the wealthy Mm -hmm. are not going away, and you're going to have to take their money away from them because they don't know what to do with it, because they're not smart enough to know how to use money properly. So the message is you have to blame yourself. So they have to create a a side myth that makes it possible for you to hope that one day, if you just work hard enough, if you just do enough, if you work enough jobs, if you work enough time, if you do whatever it is, then one day it'll happen. I was talking to a friend earlier, and we we sort of both cook a lot, and we were talking about the fact that one of the things that happens if you bring in food that you have made to work is that everyone will immediately try to offer you a catering opportunity, but very few of them will actually think of the fact that they would have to pay for your ingredients, they would probably have to pay for your time, all of that. Because the whole – and if this, this happens if you bring in any craft. Bring in something you've net to work and somebody will be like, oh, you should net me something. Mm-hmm. And it's because we all have absorbed this myth that you don't know when your big break is coming and then it'll be easy straight for you. Oh, you don't know yeah. when like the side business that's going to make you crazy amounts of money uh, comes along. You don't know. So you're supposed to just say yes to mm. every thing that debases you as a human or a worker because you don't know when that little moment goes. If you yeah. listen to the the well-to-do, the rich, especially the entrepreneur rich who think that they didn't have any advantages growing up, they always heighten some element of their story, uh, some unexpected angel investor, right. somebody they knew, whatever it is. And that's always a way of saying to the rest of us, you don't know what could happen, so just you know, work yourself to death and hopefully one of us will be along before you actually expire uninsured in a hospital bed, mm-hmm. if you're lucky. Yeah. So the, the message of the work uh, of the work yourself to death martyr and the grit kid and all of that. The worst superhero. Yeah, the grit <laughs> the kid. Great kid. Um, is if you're not able to succeed, you are a failure because that's who you are and it's your own fault. It's the same ar- argument that multi-level marketing schemes give all of their people. Oh, these candles, this aromatherapy product, this all sells itself. If you can't get this going, it's because you failed. And the fact that you have thousands of dollars of products sitting in your garage is because you are incapable of selling the easiest thing to sell in the world. So the the system works. Meanwhile, people are just floundering around in debt, you know. So and, oh, and and believe it or not, teachers get that beamed at them too. It's oh, like yeah. if you can't somehow purchase the respect or affection of your students and that's why you can't transmit whatever it is that you're supposed to be teaching them, then that's on you. It has absolutely nothing to do with them. They are surprisingly empty vessels because the people who tell you this are always the people who are telling you that you need to treat your students as 
well, people, which you should, you know, yes. that's just a good. But they always, when it comes time to actually say, hold on, if students are people, that means they have the right to resist your instruction. That means they have the right to choose to do other things. Then suddenly, no, no, wait, wait, wait. We didn't say they were people people. Mm. We said they were people for you outside of your classroom. Mm -hmm. You know, they're, they're still just enigmas. Yeah, why can't you make these numbers work? Yeah. We gave you the tools and make these numbers work. And that's how it is in most industries. No. Well, because as, as Lou said at the beginning of the segment, the economy is in that sense just a, a giant multi-level marketing scheme. And mm -hmm. we all know those are ultimately fake. So, boom, there you go. Economy's fake. Called it. I, I really do think it's – I keep saying religion. But it feels like that way because we're just fed all these myths. And then we're expected to produce, 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 and give, give, mm -hmm. give to this unseen entity that will someday bestow upon us this heavenly bounty. And I'm sorry, but I'm just not there for it. We it sounds like a work ethic of some kind. Maybe. Or like I think we can come up with a name maybe. Okay, so it's invisible <laughs> and it manipulates you kind of like invisible a hand. The invisible hand of the market. Yeah. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. <laughs> All hail the invisible hand. All hail so, the invisible hand. No. <laughs> It's Adam Smith is not allowed to be a friend of the show. <laughs> no, he's but the not. thing is, even Adam Smith wasn't Adam Smith in the first place because that's the thing. If you look at all of these supposed harbingers of, of what the crap pile, because I almost swore, uh, <laughs> that we have for an economy now, if you look at all of them, they all have deviations from that orthodoxy. True. Whether it's Hayek or Friedman or Smith, they all realized that there are some ways in which their thought experiment, if you take it to its conclusion, requires things that, well, <laughs> that if you asked Milton Friedman about them or if you asked Friedrich Hayek about them, would they would have said, no, that's completely antithetical to my politics and economic, and economic science. So all of these right-wing ideas about how the market should be set up, about how economics should work, the stuff that gets beamed at impressionable college students constantly so that all the men in particular can feel strong and cool because now they're all future masters of the universe, all of that <laughs> stuff is a lie, and it's a lie by the same people who are teaching it. Like, right. they recognize that it's not true, but we still all have to live with it. I really think that it 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 is um, a problem where I think that they expected probably back in the day that people would resist this sort of takeover and that there would be an uprising of workers like there were many times. But what they didn't figure out is that government would step in and use police to regulate the human beings instead of regulating the market, which is stepping on, you know, the necks of the human beings. And I don't know if it was just consciously set up like that so the you know, aristocracy can you know, drink their tea and giggle in their wigs about it. But, I mean, I, I really think that it's 50-50 um, it's on whether, <laughs> whether or not that's happening on purpose or it's just it's the name of the game. I think, I think the moment you had Douglas MacArthur with the bonus army, the moment that you know, the troops, the people that we are supposed to worship and stand up for at every sports event from now until the end of recorded history, the moment that an American general fired on veterans, mm. it was over. That was it. There was nothing yeah. holy anymore, ironically. That's well, I guess uh, pretty were holy, depressing. But that's different. It's, but it's always been that way. Um, you know, I mean, popular uprisings are often quelled by uh, the agents of power. So you got your police and your troops and your whatnot, and they come and they put down these, what they are told are riots when it's just a worker's rebellion because we're standing up for ourselves. If the people that are the bosses make the, make the laws along with our legislature and there's this revolving door that goes back and forth, only giving power to power, then the people in, in the, we're just playing monkey in the middle and we're always the monkey in the middle. You know, we'll never see that money. We'll never see that growth. So not that, to get too depressing. But. No, that's that's exactly <laughs> what it is, isn't it? That That's a very succinct way of putting it. So you've heard over the last two segments exactly how depressing our economy is and all the ways in which it tries to make you more depressed and work harder. You might be wondering, is there a way out? There is. And we'll get back to it after this break. If you're listening to this on the radio, congratulations. It's the exact middle point of the work week. If that doesn't make you feel any better, try listening to more Punching Out. All our past shows are available on SoundCloud and iTunes. Your boss isn't listening, but we are. 
Welcome back to Punching Out. I'm Noah. I'm here with Lou. Hey, guys. And Anita. Hi again. Over the last two segments, we've gotten admittedly real bleak and depressing about... Uh, <laughs> Normal stuff. Yes. You know, that's what you come to Punching Out for. Just to recap, the economy is completely fake. And yet it is killing all of us. But <laughs> because this is the third segment and we're supposed to be positive on this one, mm. we're going to change tax almost completely and talk about, well, it doesn't have to be this way. One of the themes that we essay on Punching Out is that these things that we take for granted as part of our culture, as part of our politics and the society in which we live, these are all choices, often choices that are made by people that are currently unaccountable to you or me or the three of us sitting in the studio, mm. but that we don't have to accept that lack of accountability and we don't have to accept that things should just be this way. We don't have to accept grit. We can be smooth. Nice. Which, Awful. like, no, I don't <laughs> accept that joke. We can, we can be creamy instead of regular cream. Uh, uh, it got grosser somehow. Yep, it did. <laughs> All right. Well, All that's right, good. So let's, let's move beyond this Sorry. now, please. Um, no more jokes. All serious. Yeah. Hmm. No, we can do jokes. They just okay. don't have to be about gray. Okay. Point is, moving on. Right. So I didn't want to pick, I, I don't think we want to pick a position here because we're three out of the Punching Out Collective and we have so far neglected to poll the rest of them on this. But... <laughs> here's a simple thing we we might think about. Maybe, I don't know, changing the idea that the goal of society is to be lashed to the eternal engine of economic growth. Mm. That could help. All right, let's start there. Yeah, like, I don't want to be one of those guys, like, powering, um, you know, the war boys on uh, (laughs) (laughs) Fury Road or whatever. (laughs) Okay. You go to your factory job yelling, witness me. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. I mean, you might as well, honestly. Your boss drives by and goes, Given the state OSHA is in, you might as well. (laughs) All right. Back on topic. Sorry. Um, Yeah. So the the problem with that is that work is ultimately coercive. Um, and, And it would be nice to just say, like, oh, I'm not going to be part of that anymore. I am out of the system or whatever. The, but you can't because if you don't work, then you don't get money mm-hmm. and then you die. Or if you don't work enough, then you don't get enough money and you just die a little bit slower. Like it's it's relentless, the, the coercive power of capitalism right. to force us into situations that we really don't want to be in. Um, so what has to happen is we need to not just, you know, as a society decide or as a culture decide that this is not the way we need to do that. We have to actually, like, it has to be ultimately somewhat top down. Like there has to be specific policies that will allow us to divorce, you know, work from surviving. So Uh, we can push for that from the bottom through solidarity. Yeah, but, you know, you got to get some billionaires on with that yeah, too. That's true. Um, I hear Tom Steyer's not doing much anymore. Maybe we should talk to him. <laughs> oh, that's he, true. His dance moves. Ooh. 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 Cringe, cringe. Cringe. Moving on. Point is, so like one of the the policies that would not be popular with anybody who owns capital because they never like anything fun uh, would be simply you know just transform the 40 hour work week to a shorter work week mm-hmm. like 32 hours or less or whatever um, but you still have to be paid the same amount yeah, yeah and that's, that's, the, that's, that's the tricky the part. part that's the tricky part that they would not be so so good with um, all right so I'm gonna do my sales pitch for that right now okay Let's so hey yeah. billionaires Sell me this pen all right you know how your workers like you have to eventually you work them so hard they die mm. or like mm. they leave because they're like oh my god I'm going to lose my mind if I work here anymore what if instead you convince them to keep working for you so you don't have to hire new people you don't have to spend any money doing that you don't have to train them they're just really good at the job and they come into work every day refreshed and feeling good so yes. here's my plan. We're going to cut their work hours. Wait, wait, listen. Don't don't turn off. Don't keep listening. We're going to keep working them less so they'll work more. I see where you're going with this. Are you saying that perhaps people who have um, a nice 
long weekend or perhaps a bridge day or even just a regular 32 to 34 hour work week are somehow more productive like oh I don't know say everywhere in the developed world <laughs> yeah 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 I think that's what I'm trying to say you mean mentally refresh our brains and even have time for side projects family love literally anything literally participate yeah participate in social reproduction a yeah. nap have yeah. life yeah. A pet. All of these things. Good uh, friend oh, of the show, goes, Karen, always liked to say that, you know, we would have more sex. Yeah. That would be fun. Especially Italians. Yeah, especially that, that was Italians a for some reason. That. Yeah. Half uh, of me agrees. <laughs> yeah. Nice. So so the, the point is, back back into reality world, because no billionaires are listening to this. Sure. Uh, we, Except possibly Tom Steyer. Yeah, he, he does have a lot hey, of time. Moving on. Hi, Tom. Hey, Tom. Love the tie. Please get a new one. Uh, yeah, it's... The point is, like, you know, to play devil's advocate for that thing is, is given that we can't overthrow capitalism overnight, a good first step would to be just to increase productivity by making workers' actual human lives better. So mm -hmm. instead of forcing everybody to work 80-hour weeks, give them a living wage. Let mm -hmm. them work less. How, like... There's there's a lot of discourse around grit and and everything else right now about how well you know time wasted is you know on you and if you you have any downtime outside of work and sleeping you should be learning another language or exercising your mind making yourself yeah. more marketable ultimately exactly. right yeah and and all these things like sure okay but there's only so hard you can actually push the human mind, body, and spirit. Right. The, you, we need to have enforced downtime as a people. You know, in national holidays should be national holidays for everyone. I'm Agreed. talking about like complete mm -hmm. work stoppage. Mm -hmm. um, and we are not at the point where we can do that. Even a lot of people in the working class wouldn't think see that as a good way, mostly because we have this grit mindset right. that is so embedded in how we operate. And even if they didn't, because if they don't work that day, they don't get paid for that True. day. That's part of the problem, too. This is something that we've talked about before. These things that seem small but have the potential to snowball. Mm -hmm. uh, I remember Earl mentioned a while back that the reason a jobs guarantee was a good idea was that creating the possibility for people to see their work as part of their community mm -hmm. as something that they do for the other people that they live with and work around and know that it would change how we view work in the first place in much the same way cutting hours without cutting pay letting it, even though it it makes a rhetorical concession to the idea that we should do these things because they increase productivity right. sure. it's still manages to do the thing where, I mean, we haven't experienced this kind of reduction at all unless it's a vindictive boss cutting your hours because they didn't like the way you looked at them in the lunchroom one right. time. Mm -hmm. So it creates the possibility, creates the ability of people to say, oh, this is within the realm of the possible. I don't actually have to work myself to death week after week after week for somebody that I'm never going to meet and who is considered my social superior because they have money to profit off of my you know, blood, sweat, and tears. And yeah. I was going to make a point that I found out that you know willpower is actually measured in calories. Mm -hmm. And you only have so many... And it's not like you can you know work yourself... You know, you'll do better if you eat more. It's just you have a certain set, you have a certain amount of willpower, and you have to agree with yourself that some of it is going to go to this and some of it's going to go to that. And if your willpower every day is being sucked away doing something that you feel nothing about, it doesn't gain you anything, and it also doesn't move you forward in your life, you will see that as a net negative. And over time, it causes you to become down, depressed even. It's, you know, we wonder why mental illness is so prevalent. I mean, of course, there's a biological component, but also there's the stress and hardship of just having a bad life with no out in sight. And I feel for those people because I understand that pain of not feeling successful because of a system that keeps whipping you every day, you know? So what needs to happen in order for us to get out of it is we need to find a way that we could possibly do a shorter work week so that we can feel more refreshed and feel like our lives still have meaning outside of what it is we do for a living. If somebody asks you, what do you do? You tell them what you do for work. 
And a lot of times it's something that you don't want to tell them because you might feel just bad about it because you don't make any money and it's not what your heart is in. But if you go elsewhere, some people will say, what do you do? What does that mean? You know, in different languages, if you were to ask somebody, what do you do? They wouldn't automatically think, oh, this means my employment. Mm. So your employment is not who you are. And we need to get out of that mindset too. Yeah. And and eventually, hopefully, that'll lead to the idea that we don't need to be in a constant growth mindset, that it's okay to take time off. And then eventually, hopefully, we can come to some kind of understanding that that's true of the economy in general. You know, one feeds into the other, and the the need to have the, cons- the economy constantly growing feeds into our idea that we also need to be constantly working and getting better. What's yeah. wrong with us inventing a robot that does our job, and then our job becomes watch that robot, and then we do less work for the same <laughs> amount of money. You still have the robot. You still get the, the benefit of what it makes, but all I have to do is make sure it doesn't malfunction, and then I get to go home after five hours. What's wrong with that? That's not bad. What's wrong with that is that, well, to us, nothing. Right. What's wrong <laughs> with that is that to a certain class of people, hi, Tom, uh, <laughs> that means that maybe the U.S. won't have as many bil- – uh, will have fewer billionaires because that's the thing. That's, that's always the re- resistant factor that you've got a lot of people who have invested a lot of money into making this horrible machine and we're all trapped in it now. And what we need to – to be able to escape it, we're going to have to do that by by small little pieces and grabs here and there. Yeah. The shorter work week, a better minimum wage. I mean, we've been fighting for $15 so long that $15 is no longer a living wage. It wasn't then either, but now it's definitely not. Right. It's just, you know, enough to tread water. And you've got guys like Bezos and whatever uh, making Sigh. some – coming out and saying some – some dumb crap about mm-hmm. how, well, we're going to raise the minimum wage at this, but then we're going to take away all these bonuses and all these other things. Because these people literally cannot think of anything as not a trade-off. Right. And they realize what the myth of constant economic growth is. They realize that every piece of that that doesn't go to them goes to somebody else. And they are going to do their level best to keep as much of it as possible. And there's and there are two ways you fight that. One is redistributive policy, which is a good thing that we should all fight for. But the other is you refuse to play that game. As people, we need to look to the future and think about the fact that we don't actually have to play it in the way that, as Lou was saying last period, uh, last segment, sorry, <laughs> we're being forced to play it. Hockey game. <laughs> or teaching. Uh, <laughs> but you're, we don't actually have to subject ourselves to the humiliation and debasement of working for somebody else's uh, gain just so that they can then tell us that we're not good enough, that we don't have the right mindset, that we're not showing enough grit, Mm. that we're not working hard enough. Mm. While they go home and sleep on their, or dive into, I presume, their giant piles of money and gold coins that they have not done a single day of work in the last 30 years to earn, if ever, right. if ever. Yeah, these these you know these billionaires with their soft hands are going to come down here and tell us how to, well, you know, we don't have the grit to wash their dishes. We don't have the, you know, the right kind of mindset. It's really galling. And ask yourself this: if you even have a shred of feeling like left in you that maybe someday I will be that billionaire, just remember that people like. I, and I'm not saying Jeff Bezos is like this, but I don't know the guy. Okay, but people who are that rich. They've bought everything there is. They've seen everything they can see. They've done every weird act that you can think of in the bedroom. They've done everything. Especially on a plane. Yeah, everything that you can even, they have totally made their lives. They're trapped in a a space where they can no longer feel um, the joys that we feel because they've overdone everything, you know? And then all that's left after that is state capture. Mm-hmm. And a paranoia of wanting to keep their hoard. They're like angry dragons. Just I'm going to go out hoarding. on a limb and say Jeff Bezos is exactly like that. He's probably based an on angry everything dragon. we've ever heard and seen from him. Yeah. Mm-hmm. At this point, it's just all about I'm um, just holding power because they know that someday somebody will quote come for them. 
So if you want to, if you want to imagine yourself in that position, just remember it's better to be um, part of a community that still feels love and care for each other mm -hmm. than to be empty inside. To to put it slightly differently, if you're somebody who thinks that one day the pie will be yours, well, there's two possibilities for your future. You can remember that everything you are going to be receiving, everything that you are going to get is going to come out of the hands of somebody else. Right. Or, or you can work for a better world in which maybe we all have a little less than we would like to have in some ideal fantasy world, but we all have enough, and if not more than enough, and we all still have, well, our souls, which may not be material, but it's certainly pretty human. Anyway, I think that is, unfortunately, all the time we have for this week. So, well, for this Wednesday, I'm Noah. I'm Anita. And I'm Lou. And this was Punching Out. You've been listening to Punching Out. You can find us on Facebook and on Twitter at Punching Out Wayo. Email us your work stories, complaints, and struggles to punchingoutwayo at gmail.com. Punching Out is a project of the Punching Out Collective. Our producer is Ryan Brister. Music for Punching Out is provided by Ariel Cruz. Tune in next week for more Punching Out. And remember, your boss isn't listening, but we are.